Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 139, verses 17 through 24. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again, New Hope. It's great to see all of you. Thanks for reading God's word to us, Hee-jung. I want to start today with a, with a question for you. It may be kind of hard to answer. How many people would you say really know you? How many people would you say know you? The real you, not the, uh, not the Instagram filtered version of you not the highly edited, carefully curated public you, but the real you. Does anyone really know you? And if so, how long has it taken them to get to know you? Some of us might say, I don't, I'm not sure if anyone really knows the real me completely, except Google. I think Google knows the real us. They've, they've, got, they've got all that truth. They know your search history and your browsing patterns and your purchasing preferences. Oh, they're watching you, collecting that data. But who else has that kind of data on you? Is there anyone who perhaps learned more and more about you, got to know you, and the more they got to know you, the less they liked you? Have you ever made yourself vulnerable, opened yourself up to be known by someone? You revealed the real you, and they saw the real you, and over time they stopped loving you, perhaps even left you. You see, there's something deep down in us that wants to be known, but there's something that scares us about being known as well. There's a vulnerability in being truly known, isn't there? Well, last week we looked at the first part of Psalm 139, the song to and about the all-knowing God, the God who knows you and knows all things. In fact, in order to remind ourselves of the verses that we looked at last week, I think it would be helpful if we read the first half of Psalm 139 together. So I'm going to invite you to read these words aloud with me from verse 1 down to verse 16, and maybe we'll stop along the way to remind ourselves of some truths here. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. 
Psalmist says, you know what I do and what I think. You know what I'm going to think before I think it. You know all my ways. Not only do you know them superficially, you know them deeply. You know them completely. You're acquainted with them because you've searched me out. You've looked deeply into my heart. The things that I don't allow other people to see, Lord, you have seen. The things I hope no one will ever see in me, you've seen. You know me exhaustively, comprehensively. Let's continue reading. And please, you're welcome to read aloud with me. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. By the way, that word for hem me in means you, you restrict me. You bind me up. You've boxed me in, in a sense. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? And that word presence means God's face. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He's saying if I go up, as far up as I can go into the stars, into the atmosphere, you're there. If I go deep down into the ground, into the grave, you are there. If I travel east where the morning dawns, you're there. If I travel west towards the sea from Israel where David the psalmist would have written this, you're there as well. I can't get away from your presence. You are not only all-knowing, you are all-present. You are not just omniscient, but you are omnipresent. Verse 11, he says, If I say, surely the dark darkness shall cover me, and the light above me shall about me, night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. This God cannot be hidden from. The darkness is as light to him. And then verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Even in the embryonic state, I was visible to you, Lord. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. All my days have been planned out and laid out by you, Lord. And so we see here a God who knows you and knows all things, not just because he is everywhere all the time, but also because he's the origin of everything. Everything we can see and can't see, it all comes from him. I wonder how you feel as you read these words. How does it feel to come to realize that God knows you and knows all things completely? How do you respond to a God from whom you cannot hide? A God who knows you comprehensively? A God whose presence can never be evaded or hid from? How do we respond to such a God? How, how do we feel about such a God? I wonder if in this room there are various responses to that. Today we're going to look at what, how the psalmist responds 
to this all-knowing God. And hopefully, our response will be shaped by what we see in his response. First thing we see in this passage is that the psalmist is overwhelmed by this all-knowing God. When he comes to realize that God is omniscient, it overwhelms him. Look at verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And I said this last week, wonderful there doesn't just mean beautiful. Wonderful there means it inspires amazement, wonder, confusion. It perplexes me. It overwhelms me. I can't wrap my head around the knowledge of God. And in verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And again, precious there doesn't just mean valuable. It means that, but it means more than that. The Hebrew word there, yakar, it means weighty. It means difficult. Difficult to understand. Your thoughts are unfathomable to me, O God. I'm overwhelmed by them. But as we look more closely at the psalmist's words, we see that he's not just overwhelmed by this all-knowing God. He's actually, in a sense, threatened and uncomfortable with this God. The scholars seem to agree almost across the board that the language that the psalmist uses at points here speaks to his discomfort. He feels kind of ambivalent. He, he, he doesn't know exactly how to respond to this all-knowing God all the time, but in some ways he feels scared, threatened by him. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? On the one hand, he's simply acknowledging the fact that he can't hide from God, but the language he uses there reveals a little bit of discomfort. Like, if, even if I wanted to get away from you, I can't. Where can I go to hide from you? The language used there is the same exact language that's used of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 when it says that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah fled from the presence of God. David is saying, sometimes I want to flee from your presence, but there's nowhere to go. Jonah couldn't get away from you. I certainly can't either. In a sense, he feels restricted by this all-knowing God. Verse 5, he says, you hem me in. Like I said, that word for hem, it means you bind me in. You, you encircle me. You lay siege to me. It's the language that would be used to talk about an army laying siege to a city, a village. You see, we all want freedom, don't we? And some of us think that freedom really amounts to being, being autonomous and anonymous. But in God's presence, we are neither. That kind of freedom God does not give us. To be autonomous, free from all restrictions, authority, and governing, and anonymous, unknown. Living in secret. God says, no, no, no. I won't give you that kind of freedom. I hem you in. I search you out. I know you through and through. And even your life, as you make decisions about what you're going to do each day, know this. 
I have ordained your days, every single one of them, from the first to the last. It's natural for the psalmist and for us to feel kind of restricted by this all-knowing God. We want the freedom to live as we want to live. The French philosopher Sartre said, if there's a God, we're not free. And if we're free, there's no God. You see, the kind of freedom he wanted, the kind of freedom that many of us want, God won't give us. No. Not autonomy, not anonymity. There's another reason that this all-knowing God in some way makes David and perhaps us uncomfortable, makes us feel a little threatened. It's because we fear being known completely, don't we? I mean, we want to be known, like we said before, but, it, but it, at the same time, we worry. If someone knows everything about us, that puts us at a disadvantage. Even letting others into our lives can be scary at times, and so we keep them at a distance. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we present a certain face publicly and hide the real us sometimes? Why do we go so far as to curate a, a persona and present that on social media or perhaps in the workplace, perhaps at church? Why do we wear masks? I don't mean the safe, the, the ma I don't mean N95 masks. I mean the masks that are meant to disguise us. Don't we hide certain things about ourselves? Maybe some of us hide certain beliefs that we think would make us unlikable. Or we hide certain habits that we think would embarrass us if other people found out about them. We feel ashamed of the true us, and so we hide. And there's something troubling about how much God knows about us, isn't there? It's kind of like the way we feel troubled by how much Google knows about us. We're afraid they're going to use that information against us to manipulate us. Of course, they're already doing that. How do we feel about a God who has that kind of information about us? More than Google. Doesn't it feel invasive? Well, we also feel threatened and uncomfortable with this God knowing everything about us at times because, frankly, he's holy and we're not. We sang about this holy, holy, holy God. And even as they sing that, it comes out of hearts that are Stained by sin. He made us, formed us in the womb, ordained our days, but haven't all of us fled from him at times? Tried to flee from his presence? Tried to separate ourselves from him? Tried to hide from him? Haven't we all in some ways rejected him? Not worshipped him as holy? He's given us everything that we need, and yet at times we want everything he has to offer us except for himself. Think about that level of entitlement that we display before this all-knowing God. No wonder we're troubled and scared in his presence sometimes. You know, in this passage, there's an interesting section where David says, In verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
They take your name in vain. As we read those words, ever stop to think that we, in fact, are the wicked in some ways? That we, in some sense, have blood on our hands? That we, at times, have operated with malicious intent? That we have taken God's name in vain, not just by saying OMG and things like that. I mean operating, taking the name of God upon ourselves and then living in ways that bring shame to his name, that dishonor him. Haven't we taken his name in vain? This is part of why we might feel uncomfortable with this all-knowing God, because when we read verses 19 through 22, we have to start asking ourselves, wait a second. If God is really going to slay the wicked, then what does that mean for me? I feel threatened by these words. I've done wickedness. I'm not good enough. I've failed. And that's why the presence, the face of God can be utterly frightening to us. And so the psalmist, I believe, and perhaps some of us as we read these words, feel on the one hand overwhelmed, but also threatened and uncomfortable. There's good news. These words, these overwhelming, frightening words can actually comfort us. In fact, they can transform us and bring us a deep-seated peace if we read them through the lens of the gospel. Have you ever read Psalm 22? The opening of Psalm 22 reads this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22, the opening line, reads kind of like the opposite of Psalm 139. If Psalm 139 is about a God who is all-present, all-knowing, sees everything because he is everywhere, I can't hide from him. Psalm 22 is written from the perspective of a, of a man who feels alone and hidden from the eyes of God, forsaken by God. He feels like God's eye is not on him. He feels like God is too far to even hear his words and hear his groaning. These words from Psalm 22 were taken by Jesus Christ himself while he was on the cross, and he made these words his own. And he cried out from that cross, from that place of utter torment and agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds like the anti-Psalm 139. There was purpose in the forsakenness of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was forsaken on that cross, made to feel utterly alone so that we would be encompassed, cared for, known, and loved forever. He was forsaken so that you would never have to be forsaken. He cried out, God, you, you can't, you're too far to even hear my words so that we could say eternally, Oh, Lord, before a word is even on my lips, you know it all together. He was made to feel alone so that we would never have to be alone. He was separated in one sense from, from one perspective so that we would never have to be separated from the love of the Father. 
He did it so that we would be forgiven. So that enemies of God could become friends of God. So that when God does finally slay the wicked, those who have put their faith in Jesus and have been united to Jesus, they're no longer in that category of enemies. All their wickedness has been forgiven. All your malicious intent. Oh, God sees it. He saw it. He chooses to cover it with the blood of Christ and cleanse you from it. Oh, you've taken his name in vain. He heard it. And yet he's willing to cover that. To overlook your sin. Because it was paid for with the blood of Jesus, his son. That's the gospel. And when we look at Psalm 139, this all-knowing, all-present God who intimidates us when we look at him through the lens of the gospel, when we see him from the perspective of the cross and the empty grave of Jesus, no, we don't need to be intimidated anymore. We can be moved to worship, to fear God with a healthy fear. What does the psalmist say? In Psalm 130, verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see what the psalmist is saying there? There are many reasons to fear God, to be moved to awe. He's all-knowing, for one thing. He's omnipresent. He is all-powerful, the origin of all things. But, but the psalmist says, beyond all that, here's the number one reason to awe, to be moved to amazement and awe in the presence of God. He forgives sins. Which means I can be moved to awe, but I can also be in relationship with him. I can get close to him and be safe because he forgives sins. He punished them in his son. And so, Psalm 139 presents to us a God who's, look at verse 10. No matter where I go, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Apart from Christ and apart from forgiveness, the hand of God is there to exert wrath. Yes, he provides, he cares, but ultimately he will punish those who are not in Christ. And yet in Christ, we can say, your hand is there to always seek my good. Your hand is there to guide me. I don't need to flinch from your hand, right? You know an abused pet or an abused child for that matter, when someone raises their hand around them, what happens? They flinch. We don't need to flinch in the presence of God anymore. When he lifts his hand, we know it's to guide us. It's to hold us fast. When we look at Psalm 139 through the lens of the gospel, we see that even in the hemming in that God does, there's goodness in that. There's safety. When he hems us in, it's with loving arms to keep us safe. We want anonymity and autonomy. God says, no, I'll give you a better freedom than that. A freedom within the bounds of what I call good. A freedom, the freedom to exist within my kingdom under my law, and I guarantee you, you will flourish. You've pursued your own freedom, your own versions of freedom, and it's never led to good for you, has it? I had a neighbor who used to go on vacation to Virginia every year, and he told me that he always liked going to this one beach in Virginia because there are these wild, I think it was an island off the coast of Virginia perhaps, but there are these wild horses 
that would gallop across the beach. And he said, no one owns these horses. They just come out when they want to and they gallop and you can just stand there and watch. They were free. And yet those horses, as free as they were, they'd always stay on the beach. They never would run out into the highway and they would never run out into the ocean. Imagine if they did. Imagine if one of them got the idea that, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm really wild enough. I don't think I'm really free enough. I want more freedom. And as they all galloped up the coast, he decided to hang a right and head into the waves. His freedom would be short-lived. There's a path that looks like the path to freedom for us, but God calls it a path to destruction. How much more freedom and joy is there living within the boundaries, the coastlines that God has set for us? And said, in, in, in this way of life, you will find true freedom and true joy. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that even in the darkness, we can experience light. A darkness in the Psalms invariably seem to refer to suffering and pain, death. The psalmist is saying, even in suffering and pain and death, even, as I, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, Psalm 23 says. You are with me. And that valley isn't so dark when you're with me. Verse 16 says, my days are ordained, all of them. You've set out my days from the first to the last. Our days are numbered, which may sound scary, right? That's a, that's a threat when you say your days are numbered. When God says your days are numbered, it's actually meant to comfort us. Like, don't worry. Don't worry. You've got a number. You've, got, you've all got a number. And you will live out that number. Not one day less, not one day more. So you can rest in that. When we have sick family members, we can rest in the fact that their days have been ordained by God. They have a number. In the middle of a pandemic, we can find deep comfort in knowing that he has ordained our days. As yet, when there were none of them, they were all written in his book. This God who is always present, always with you. He has you by the hand. He turns your darkness into light. He's no longer your enemy if you have believed the gospel. And this God, because of the gospel, we know that he can be trusted. He can be trusted. The very two last verses of Psalm 139 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grave, grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's interesting. The psalmist starts by saying, verse 1, You've searched me and known me. And he ends by saying, Lord, search me and know me. You have already searched me and known me. There was a time when that frightened me. I was intimidated by the nearness and intimacy of, how, of your knowledge. But I'm no longer intimidated anymore, Lord. Now I welcome it. Search me, Lord. 
know me. I find strength and peace and comfort in your all-seeing eye. Search me out. And the reason we can trust him is because the same God who searches you out is also willing to then lead you in the way everlasting. When, when we say to the Lord, search me and see if there's any grievous way in me, see if there's any sin in me, is there anything in me that brings dishonor to you, anything that hurts others or hurts me, anything, Lord, that is against your will, search it out, see it. Because I know that when you see it, you're not going to shame me over it. You're going to lead me in the way everlasting. You're going to lead me down a path of repentance by which I turn away from whatever that grievous thing is in my heart, and I find renewed joy. I can find freedom from addiction. I can find freedom from any binding, entangling sin if you, O oh Lord, will simply lead me in the way everlasting. But first, you need to search me out. Show me what's there, and then give me the power by your Spirit to walk away from it into the path of freedom. He can be trusted. We can open ourselves to him. In prayer, we don't need to present a self to him, a curated, carefully filtered and edited persona to him. We can present the real us to him. Oh, he sees it already. But we are hindered. We are hurt when we don't acknowledge that and simply open ourselves up and say, Lord, I want you to, to, I want to bring to you in worship, in prayer, the authentic me. And I've been faking for so long, sometimes I don't even know who that real authentic me is anymore. But you know. So give me the power to open myself up to you. In verse 18, he says, When I awake, when I awake, I am still with you. And scholars agree that this is talking about sleep, of course. You go to bed and you wake up, you're still with them. But there's deeper meaning here. The psalmist may very well be alluding to death itself. When I sleep in the grave, I will one day awake, and you will still be with me. When we open ourselves up to this God through faith in Jesus Christ, we experience not just freedom in this life right now, but we experience eternal freedom. The resurrection of our bodies. Even when we die, we will awake and we will stand face to face with our Redeemer. When we look at Psalm 139 through the lens of the gospel, there's deep comfort for us and eternal hope for us here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The promise of Psalm 139 is that we know ourselves dimly now. We know ourselves a little bit, and we know God a little bit. But there will come a day when Christ returns, and all the dead in Christ will be resurrected to life eternal, bodily. And yes, we will know each other perfectly, and we'll know ourselves perfectly, but we will know him, our God, perfectly, just as we are perfectly known by him. And we will experience intimacy with him we've never experienced before. We will experience the joy of his presence. What does the psalmist say? In his presence, there's joy forevermore. New Hope, to some degree, we all struggle with the omniscience and omnipresence of God. 
maybe, maybe even still, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of his, but you still feel kind of uncomfortable, perhaps ambivalent, with the fact that God sees everything and he is everywhere. It's natural for us, in a sense, to be troubled by that because, like I said, we want freedom and we think that freedom looks like being autonomous and anonymous. And we're afraid of being known because we're afraid that there'll be shame and guilt if we are completely known. But at the same time, we do want to be protected and guided, don't we? Don't you want a God who is present with you to direct you through life, to help you navigate through challenges, to to keep you safe, to hold you fast? And deep down, don't you want to be known, fully known? Don't you want the real you to be exposed and loved, fully accepted. Oh, so that's why we feel that tension. Only the gospel speaks to all of that. Because in the gospel, we are brought into relationship with a God who will give us real freedom, who will not shame us, even though he knows us fully. He will protect us. He will guide us. and he will fully accept us and transform us. As we end, I just want to give you two basic takeaways here in the form of questions. Just kind of repeat myself a little bit here, but do you you long to be known and understood and accepted? Do you wonder if anyone in your life really understands you? And if they did understand you, would they still be able to love you? You need to know that that desire to be known fully and loved, it was never meant to be fulfilled through a human relationship. Not completely. There are those close to you that know you well and they still love you, but they don't know you completely. That desire to be fully known and and fully loved was never meant to be fulfilled by a human relationship. It never will be fulfilled, not completely. No one will ever understand everything you want them to understand about you. No matter how much chemistry you have. And if they find out enough truth about you, they might one day be repulsed by you. It's possible. That deep, deep longing to be fully known and fully loved was meant to be fulfilled by your creator, by your father, God. Remember last week I said that God made you for himself. In verse 13, it says that you you formed me in my mother's womb. And that word for form also contains the the meaning of uh, acquiring or purchasing. It's as if he's saying, God, you made me and purchased me. You made me and acquired me. You made me for yourself. In my mother's womb. Well, this is what I meant. He didn't make you as a a plaything for himself. You're not God's pet. But he made you to experience intimacy with him eternally. He made you to be known by him and to find fulfillment and peace and rest in that. Here's the last question I ask you. you. Do you long to be omnipresent and omniscient? What I mean is, do you long to know everything and be everywhere? I think a lot of us do. 
God says, tells us to strive for godliness, right? He says, be like me. He tells us to be like him. That means we are to, we're, we're meant to, to seek to be wise like he is, patient like he is, and loving like he is, and generous like he is, and holy like he is. We're, we're told to pursue all of that, but sometimes we pursue his incommunicable attributes. We pursue those characteristics that we were never meant to have, like, yeah, patience is good. I, I could use a little bit more patience, but what I really want is to be all-knowing. What I really want is to be perceived as all-powerful. What I really want is to be everywhere at once. And so we strive for omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. And technology makes it a little bit easier for us. We can almost be different places at the same time now. We can meet virtually, worship virtually. We can stream content on demand. I'm old enough to remember that there was a day when if you wanted to watch your favorite show, you had to be at home at a certain time, make sure that your siblings weren't in front of the TV, make sure you'd reserve that television Thursday night, 8 o'clock, I want to watch Magnum P.I. That's i got to be there to watch it. Oh, we've got a little bit, we've got a little bit of taste of an omnipresence now. Because I could be everywhere on a Thursday night at 8 o'clock and still watch that show. I can stream it on demand. I can record it for later. I can watch all my old favorite shows now whenever I want on YouTube. We can get information so instantaneously. We start to feel omniscient. You ask me a question, if I have my phone and a, and a signal, I might be able to find an answer for you really fast. But here's a question, even as we've gotten a little bit closer to omniscience and a little bit closer to omnipresence, has it really, has it really helped us? I mean, it's helped us in some ways, but has it been all good? Has it led to more wisdom? As a society, are we wiser than we were once because we have so much more information? Are we more present in our relationships with one another now that we can stream and text I would say, perhaps less present with one another. <laughs> because we can't be omnipresent. We seek to divide ourselves. I want to be in a conversation with you while I'm also looking at my phone. And I convince myself that somehow I'm able to do both of them, but I can't. Multitasking is a myth. You can only be one place at one time, and your attention can only be on one thing at once, no matter how great of a multitasker you think you are. You're only giving others half your attention, <laughs> or a third, or a quarter. So I would say that these technological advances that make us feel a little bit more all-present and all-knowing haven't really made us a happier people. They haven't really made us a freer people, not in all ways. We resist our limitations. But in Psalm 139, God is calling us to accept our limitations and to worship in the presence of a limitless God who made us with those limitations, and says, you will thrive, you will flourish, you will be happy if you embrace the fact that you are not omnipresent and never will be, that you can't be everywhere at once. Accept your weaknesses. Embrace those limitations and praise God for his limitless knowledge, his presence, 
his power. He is fully present everywhere and knows all things. And so you don't need to scramble through life working harder and harder and harder, saying yes to everything, being everywhere people demand you be, trying to fulfill every expectation to show that you're as omnipresent and omniscient as you want to be. No, you don't need to do that. Because God is limitless in his knowledge and in his presence, you can actually tell people, I don't know the answer to that. I don't have an opinion because I haven't thought enough about it, and I don't know. Because God is limitless in his knowledge and his presence. You can say to others, I'd like to be able to help you with that, but I can't be there. I can't take on that additional responsibility. I'm sorry. I'd like to be able to serve this firm better. I'd like to be able to serve this company. I'd like to be able to be there and do more, but I can't. God has hemmed me in with certain limitations, and I'm going to accept those. Those of us with children want to be omnipresent and omniscient in their lives. We want to know everything about our kids. We want to know everything about every one of their relationships, every moment of their lives, every communication that they sent out. We want to see what, what, what was that about? And so we begin to hem in our children. As if everywhere they go, they, they can't escape from our presence. If I go to the east or the west, everywhere I go, I can't escape from your presence, Dad. And as they get older, we struggle to entrust them to the all-knowing, ever-present God. We want to hold them by our hands and hem them in. God calls us, no, embrace your limitations and surrender your children to me. I'm searching them out. I know them through and through. They may be struggling with a sense of identity. They don't know who they are just yet. They may present a different self depending on which friend group they're with. They may act different at church than they do at school and at home. But God says, I've searched them out and I know them. You can entrust your children to me. I can do for them what you can't. It's not a call to be passive in our parenting, but it's a call to embrace our limitations and surrender our children to the Lord. When we started this series in Psalms, I said that um, one of the things we hope to take away from Psalms, from the Psalms, is um, we want to learn more about how to pray to God, and, and and the Psalms teach us more about how to pray. And I think one one way that this psalm instructs us is to come before God as our authentic selves. No masks, no facades. And say, Lord, you have known me. You have searched me. Search me out and know me more. When we pray in light of Psalm 139, we can say with the psalmist together, Search me, O God, and know me, my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. <sighs> and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess that you are trustworthy. 
We don't want to hide from your all-seeing eye anymore. We want to bring everything out into the light and be our true selves before you. Lord, if there are any men, women, or children here who have been hiding parts of their lives from others or from you, oh, Lord, would you, would you convince them to drag whatever it is that they're hiding out into the light? Show them, Lord, that you already see it. They can't hide it from you. And lead them in the way everlasting. Lead them towards repentance and renewed faith in you. Lord, help us to embrace our limitations even as we awe in the presence of your limitless power and presence and knowledge. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that in Christ, a fearful God becomes to us a father who knows us fully and accepts us completely. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.